Hey, thanks for joining us at Connection Point Church. You know, we would love for you to stay connected and a simple way for you to do that is to subscribe so that each week you can get notified when new content goes live. We'd also love to keep in touch with you throughout the week and the best way to do this is through our Connection Point Facebook page. Now with all that being said, let's go to this week's message with our lead pastor, Zach Maddox. As uh, Shelly and I have served Jesus as teachers, as cross-cultural workers, and as ministers, one of the reoccurring themes of service in God's kingdom is the need to resolve conflict in God-honoring ways, for whatever reason. <laughs> uh, but really, let's say, it, it doesn't really just apply to kingdom work. The ability to resolve conflict in peaceful and proactive ways, it's important in marriage, in parenting, in family relationships, in the workplace, really any environment where two or three are gathered, right? You need to be able to resolve conflict in, in really positive ways. Are you familiar with that verse where two or three are gathered in his name? You know, God is there in the midst of them. I'm actually going to get back to that verse because I want to look at the context of, of where that verse comes from. But I did find, I was looking that, that verse up and found some funny memes of where two or three are gathered. So I thought I'd share some of those with you. Where two or more Pentecostals are gathered in his name, spontaneous dancing will occur. Where two or more Southern Baptists are gathered in his name, a chicken must die and be fried and eaten. Or two or three are gathered in his name, four or five opinions will be shared. <laughs> you know, it does seem you get a few people in a room these days that it creates a great space, or at least it can, for, for differences of opinion. But let me say, differences of opinion, they really aren't bad in, in and of themselves. What's important is that we know how to deal with them. In other words, what is God's plan for resolving differences and disagreements? That's what we want to talk about today. Because really for us or any congregation to live well in community, it's vital we know how to resolve differences and then we put those principles into practice. We first have to know it, but then we also have to live it out. So it doesn't do us a whole lot of, a whole lot of good to know it and not do it. So, so we want to do both. And so this leads us to the question we'd like to answer today as we continue our Better Together series with a message on Jesus and conflict. And the question is, is how do we live well in community? But could I also put before you today, I think our world needs a great example of how to resolve differences, right? Amen. And you know where that example is supposed to come from? Us. May we be that example. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Hey, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18 today. I'm going to invite you to stand for reading of God's word. I don't know what you do at home. You can stand if you want to. It's up to you. We're going to be Matthew chapter 18, taking a look at verse 15. We'll start there. And uh, here's what uh, Matthew, a follower of Jesus, he writes and what Jesus speaks. Here's what Jesus says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. These are the very words of God. You may be seated this morning. In review, we've been in this Better Together series, the understanding that we truly are better together. The way that you get through difficulty is together. The way that we reach the world is together. And so then the question is, well, how do we live together? And so we've kind of established, well, we've got to have this foundation upon which that we all understand. And, and so we understand that we have a king, that we live in a kingdom. God's word is our guide, and we have a mission to fulfill. 
And that mission requires endurance. And, and so what we've been doing is we've been talking about those characteristics which lead to endurance. Things such as living well in Christian community, serving, giving, having times of regular rest, praying, fasting, and last week we talked about singing. And now today we want to talk about resolving conflict because the ability to peaceably resolve conflict, it's part of how we endure in this life that the Lord has led us in. There's only two places, this is really interesting to me, only two places in the New Testament books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that Jesus uses the word church. And so then I think if he only mentions it twice in those four books, we probably should pay attention to those two places. The first one we talked about in our message on Jesus and community that we had last fall. So if you missed that message, I actually would encourage you to go back and listen to that message. I really would have probably liked to put these two together, um, but we preached on community near Christmas, and I didn't feel like talking about conflict at Christmas. It might have applied, but I just didn't care to get into it, so I thought like we could push that one out. So, but I encourage you to go back and listen to that message if you missed it. And in the message, in Matthew chapter 16, here's a verse that we read. I will build my church, Jesus says, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And so then he says, my church will advance. But here's the thing. So then a couple of chapters later, he says, by the way, when, while you're living on mission together, you're going to have some disagreements. You might even have some divisive actions. And so if that happens or when that happens, here's how you're to resolve it. Because when we live on mission, we're going to wind up with some differences, but that's okay. And so now what we're going to look through today is, is God's plan, Jesus's plan of how we work through differences, disagreements, and divisive actions. Because that's what's going to happen as we live on this mission that Jesus has for us. And the first thing we find is this. We live well in community by talking directly with other people. That's the first thing. We live well by talking directly with other people. And I love how this section of scripture opens. Jesus says, if your brother, let me add to that, if your brother or your sister, not if your boss or if your coworker or if your enemy causes you problems, but if your brother or your sister. The whole context of this passage is we are a part of the family of God. Every one of us. You're sitting next to brothers and sisters this morning. We have brothers and sisters all across the greater Lafayette area today, tuning in online. Jesus uses family language to remind us we're all in this together. The motive for resolving conflict is that we're to have care and concern for our brothers and sisters in Jesus. This is so important this morning. So, people, so many people miss this when they, and then they get into this passage, that the whole goal of this passage is one of reconciling relationships, of wanting to see brothers and sisters living well in community. It goes back to that psalm that I quoted when we opened today, where David writes, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's an answer to the high priestly prayer of Jesus when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. I pray that they will be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. The goal of Matthew 18 is to see a church that's united and blessed and living well together on Jesus' mission. The goal of this passage, I want to be clear this morning, it's not rejection or dismissal of members from a church. That's not the goal. Now, it's not to say there's not times when people need to be rebuked by the Lord for their behavior that's damaging to the witness of a local congregation, but those examples typically, from my experience, they are few and far between. The principles we're going to look at today have at their core the desire to see people living well in community with one another. It's so important we understand that love is the foundation of this passage. As I have loved, Jesus said, so you are to love. And this applies to conflict resolution as well. And the first principle Jesus shares is, if your brother sins against you, 
Go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. The best thing you can do when you have relational strife is go and talk directly to the person who's at the center of that friction. You don't go and talk with a friend. You don't go and tell church leadership. You don't go and process with others. You go directly to the other individual involved. Anything else, anything else, it's got the potential to create division in the body of Christ. And I really think this is why Jesus addresses this issue because he knew the enemy. We all have an enemy and that he would do everything he could to keep the church from fulfilling its mission. And the number one strategy that the enemy has is to create disunity among believers in the local church. Behind every church split, every church board blow up, every request of a lead pastor to leave by a congregation is the inability to resolve conflict according to the plan of Jesus. And historically, the mission of God has suffered because of it. So how then? How do we go and talk to others directly? Because that can be kind of a hard thing to do. So a couple of principles I want to share. Peter Scazzaro in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he points out what I believe are, are two of the best ways to resolve conflict in proactive ways. And here they are. So here's where you could write down. Checking out assumptions and clarifying expectations. Those are the two ways to do it. So go directly and do those two things. Check out assumptions and clarify expectations. Checking out assumptions is a very simple but powerful tool that can resolve untold numbers of conflicts in relationships. If it enables us to check out whether what we're thinking and feeling about another person is true. Now, because in case you're unaware, our thoughts and feelings are not always reliable sources of information. So we got to check things out. Checking assumptions enables us to clarify potential misunderstandings. I can't tell you how thankful I am for those people. In this congregation, there have been some that have been wonderful to say, when you said this, what did you mean by that? I love it when people check assumptions. You know what that is? That's spiritual maturity. And it's helpful. Because otherwise, every time we make an assumption about someone uh, who else has maybe hurt or disappointed us in some way, if we don't confirm what that was or the intent behind it, we believe a lie about that person in our heads. We do. And those assumptions are misrepresentations of reality. So when we've not checked something out with someone else, it's very possible we're believing something that's untrue and then our mind kind of runs with those things. It's also likely we could pass down that false assumption to others too, which is of course incredibly damaging to any relationships, any organization, anybody. So how can we avoid this? How can we check out assumptions? So a simple way to do it, go directly to the individual. And just as uh, Jesus instructs us and simply asks, can I check an assumption out with you? an assumption that I'm making. And it might seem kind of awkward at first, but you'll soon find this is really not a hard question to ask. Most people are like, well, sure, absolutely. And then you can just say, so ask them, I think you think, or I assume that you're thinking, and then just fill in the blank and then allow the person to respond. It creates a good dialogue. I know that, um, and I'm mentioning this context or mentioning this in the context of our congregation, but let me say, this is a good practice for employees, for employers, for spouses, for friends, for roommates, coworkers, parents, children, about any situation. It's good to check out assumptions. It's a way of eliminating conflicts. It's a wonderful way to take thoughts captive, as scripture instructs us to. So the other tool I'd encourage you is to clarify expectations. Unmet or unclear expectations, they create havoc in our places of employment, in our classrooms, with friendships, dating relationships, marriages, sports teams, families, and churches. So consider these examples. Of course you're coming to a family event. We're important to you, aren't we? Come on now, is that true? Like people make these assumptions and expectations. I never knew the job involved all that. You never told me. 
My adult son should know I need him to come over and fix things. I shouldn't have to ask. I'm so disillusioned. I expected that a good marriage just happened naturally. In a good church, everyone should be friendly and supportive and know when anyone else is hurting. So these are expectations. And so what happens is, is we expect other people to know what we want them to know. And before we know it, we're in a conflict situation. So here's the problem with most expectations. Here's the problem. Number one is they're unconscious sometimes. We have expectations we're not even aware of until someone disappoints us. So you might have an unconscious expectation of someone else or a relationship. They could be unrealistic, so, so we have illusions about others. You know, for example, we think a spouse, a friend, or, or a pastor will be available at all times to meet our needs. Might be unrealistic, could be unspoken. We may have never told our spouse, our friend, or an employee what we expect, yet we're angry when our expectations aren't met. Or the expectations that might have been unagreed upon. We may have our own thoughts about what's expected, but it's never been agreed upon by another person. But expectations are only valid when they're mutually agreed upon. So in order for expectations to be established, here's what they've got to be. They've got to be conscious. We have to be aware of our own expectations. Make sure you're aware of them. Number one, they've got to be realistic. We have to ask ourselves if our expectations regarding other people is realistic. They've got to be spoken. We have to speak of our expectations clearly, directly and respectfully with others. And lastly, they've got to be agreed upon. In order for our expectations to be valid, the other person must be aware of and agree to them. Otherwise, it's just a hope. It's so important for us to live well in community by speaking directly with others, checking assumptions, and clarifying expectations. Those are two big things. So take time this week. I'd encourage you, take time. Check out some assumptions with others. When something regarding someone else comes to mind this week, just call them. Invite them over for coffee and have a conversation. You'll find yourself happier and freer of mind if you do. This is part of how you renew your mind in the kingdom of God. This process is. And then maybe think about an expectation you have of a spouse or a friend or a roommate, boss, family member, or coworker. Ask yourself, am I conscious of it? Is it realistic? Has it been spoken? Have they agreed upon it? Initiate conversations with others and seek to come to mutually agreed upon expectations. You'll live with more peace if you do. And lastly, think of a person who may have an unconscious, unrealistic, unspoken, or unagreed upon expectation of you. Maybe you're sometimes aware of that. Sit down and talk with them and discuss it. Seek to come to a mutually agreed upon expectation because we live well in community. For us to do it, it's vital that we talk directly with others. But we also find from our passage that we live well in community by inviting others to help mediate our relationships. If after you've met with someone privately, you've not found resolve, it's important to invite others into that situation to serve as mediators for that relationship. Jesus shares, if the person does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, when I was in uh, high school in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, at John Hersey High School, they, they started a program called peer mediation. I was invited to serve as a peer mediator in the process. It's really actually simple. Uh, two students at odds with one another, they could refer each other or someone could refer them, where they would come and just sit down with a, a well-trained peer to work through differences. And I would say this, 24 years later, I found those skills incredibly helpful. You know, like you always have those classes, you're like, when am I ever going to apply this? Peer mediation, you wind up applying that for, for a lot of different situations. And considering, let me say this, any one of us is supposed to have the ability to serve as a mediator for others. I want to share these tools with you. Because you'll notice in this passage, Jesus, Jesus doesn't say church leaders are mediators. He just says anybody, any uh, one or two other people, have them come and join in that conversation to serve as a mediator. So I want you to know how to do this too. So if you're asked to serve in this way, here's a good approach. At the start, encourage parties 
to agree to some ground rules. So the first thing is establish some ground rules. Something like, may I suggest, we agree that we'll take turns speaking, we won't interrupt each other. You know, that's a good ground rule. Uh, you may also want to add, I'm not, I'm not here to take sides. I'm simply here to help facilitate conversation as an outside party and maybe provide some clarity as you both share. So first thing is provide some ground rules. And I would say this because one of the challenges in conflict is sometimes it's hard to see the forest, you understand this, the forest from the trees. In other words, you can be so embedded in whatever that relationship is or the situation, you're too close, it can actually cloud your judgment and make it hard to find a peaceable way forward. And that's why we bring a third party in because they can kind of see the overarching picture. So after establishing ground rules, both parties need to share their stories. That's the second thing. Parties share their stories, giving each the time to speak without interrupting each other. A mediator can use questioning and clarifying to make sure both parties understand what's really at hand. And then uh, you could even summarize what each party has said to make sure everybody's clear on, on what's being spoken in the moment. The key, let me say this, the key to helping resolve conflicts is you've got to look forward. You can't just keep looking back. And I don't know where you're at this morning, but maybe you're looking back on a situation. But can I encourage you, the way is always forward with God. Living in the past leads to blame, whereas looking to the future invites people to think about what to do next and how the relationship can be restored. This is, of course, God's intent. Scripture tells us, look, we all fall short. All of us make mistakes, but how you move forward in the process is what God wants in the end. God has the capacity. Let me, let me share this morning. God has the capacity to make all things new. So maybe even as I'm, I'm sharing these thoughts this morning, there's even relationships that have come to mind. Can I tell you this morning, God can make all things new. He can make all things new. And that's his desire for you. So a mediator, what do they do? Set ground rules, allow stories to be shared. And then mediators can invite participants to look for solutions. So mediators can ask, how would you like to see this situation resolved? Or, or what would be your ideal outcome for the situation? Well, what you want to do is move parties to a mutually agreed upon expectation. So all mediators are doing is actually the same thing. They want to help people Check, uh, check assumptions and clarify expectations that are leading them through that process. Because it's in false assumptions and unmet expectations, relationships get derailed. And again, I want to remind us, what's the goal? I always want to establish, what's the goal? The goal of the process that Jesus lays out for us is restoration of those relationships. That's always the goal. The goal is brothers and sisters living together in unity. So if you're having a difficult time reconciling a relationship, maybe invite someone else to come in and serve as a mediator. If someone asks you to serve as a mediator, just take a look at your notes from this. Set those ground rules. Help people to share their stories and then come up with solutions. Because we can live well in community as we invite others to help mediate relationships. And lastly, we live well in community by involving leaders in unresolved situations. We live well in community by involving leaders in unresolved issues. The last part of the process Jesus shares is if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So here's where the church word is. Tell it to the congregation, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. If the peer mediation process fails, it's important to bring leaders into the situation. This would apply to your workplace, your marriage, and of course, the local church. If there's a disagreement between people in our congregation, it's important you go and talk to others directly. Talk to the person directly, don't talk to others. And it's important that you invite another peer person into that conversation. It might be necessary to invite church leaders to the table. So a peaceable way forward can be found. And my hope would be, and this is the hope of the Lord too, my hope would be at this point, those relationships can be restored and we can be an answer to Jesus's high priestly prayer of becoming one, just as Jesus and the Father are one. But if not, Jesus says we're to treat the offending party 
like a Gentile or tax collector. But I want to pause here for a minute and maybe have you consider this in a little bit different light. Because when we look at Matthew, I want us to consider Matthew chapter 18, and I want us to consider the context of who Jesus is talking to. Jesus is talking to the disciples. He's talking to the 12. And at this point, they've journeyed with Jesus for a long time. And so when he's talking with those 12, he says, treat him like a Gentile or tax collector. I think we need to consider how did Jesus up to that point treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Let's take a look. If you look back at Matthew chapter 8, you see Jesus heals the paralyzed servant of a Roman centurion. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus heals the demon-possessed daughter of a Canaanite woman. The writer of the New Testament book that we're in, Matthew, he was a tax collector. And here's how Jesus treated him as a tax collector. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. I want to go back to what I mentioned in these verses. Everything Jesus says falls under the category of love others as I have loved you. And that applies to this passage as well. Because in my experience, both as a mediator and as a party involved in mediation, I have found some people are unwilling to go through this process successfully. I want to put before you, there's kind of, I'm going to say just two broad categories as you're going through this process. You might have differences or be in disagreement with the person, but there also might be a divisive individual. So can I say we treat those as two different cases? If you're simply having differences or disagreement with someone, I actually think the way forward in that is that you still maintain a loving relationship with those people in your life. You, so let me, let me just go ahead and share with you. In case you haven't figured out in life, you will have difficult people in your life. Anybody figured that out yet? Come on, be honest this morning. It's part of living. But I think what Jesus, the example he gives in terms of treating them like he treated Gentiles and tax collectors is we're to love those individuals. And the question is, well, why would Jesus put difficult people in my life? Well, there's a reason for that. The reason is, is Jesus wants to grow us. Difficult people in your life sanctify you. They help you become more like Jesus. We find in James chapter one, James, the brother of Jesus, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Difficult people in your life will be a trial to test your faith. You can't fully mature without being attacked. Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom. Notice that he actually says that twice if you go to Matthew chapter uh, five. God uses these types of situations in our life to sanctify us. When everyone around you loves you, it's nearly impossible to develop the character that God wants for us. We don't display Christian love when we love those who love us. It's when we love those who slander us that we demonstrate the love of Christ. So I would say, challenge yourself to grow to the point where you actually grow to appreciate the difficult people in your life. I'm going to be honest with you this morning. I'm still growing in that one myself. Because <laughs> who wants difficult people in your life? You don't. But I will say this. Here's where I've grown to the point where at least if I've got difficult people, I ask, and Lord, what are you trying to show me about myself with these individuals? What are you trying to show me about my character? So I want to say, this is in its own category. If you're dealing with difficult people or people that you're in disagreement with, go through the process. And some are unwilling to go, but I would say we're still called to love them. But what about those individuals who truly are divisive? And especially in the context of the local church, let me talk about that a little bit differently because I do think it's different when you've got somebody who's wrong, living in sin, and ultimately causing division within the body. This is different. It's different than difficult people that you're simply trying to resolve differences with. Scripture might admonish us to put up with difficult people, because I think it does, but it clearly tells us to deal with divisive individuals. We find in Titus chapter 3, 
As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. A person's talking about others or living in unrepentant sin can be incredibly divisive in a local church, keeping the congregation from fulfilling the mission of God. So if you talk with an individual in this category, they're divisive. They're, they're actually harming the witness of the local church. And if you invite a mediator to help resolve the situation, the person continues, and if after church leadership gets involved, the individual carries on, a congregation is instructed to discontinue fellowship with those who cause division in the body. And not because the congregation condemns them, look at the verse, but because that person has condemned themselves. And let me ask, because some would still ask, but why would a loving God ask congregations to discontinue fellowship with those causing division? Can I put before you today? Some people have to experience hell before they can appreciate heaven. Can I say as a pastor, I hate that principle, but that doesn't mean it's untrue. Some people have to experience hell before they can appreciate heaven. Some people have to go without Christian fellowship for a time so they can come to the end of themselves so that they can re-enter the kingdom as the poor in spirit, those who are humble and repentant and understand the loss of Christian community is a great loss. But I wanna point out this, even in this situation, the goal is for those individuals to wind up back in the place of kingdom living again, that they wind up back in Christian community. The goal is always restoration, always. So how do we live well in community? We talk with people directly in order to check assumptions and clarify expectations. Don't be the type of person who claims to be a safe place, a person who's willing to listen to people's complaints about others. That's sin and it's divisive. Instead, if you hear anybody talking about others, bring them to the person they're talking about. Be courageous enough to lead reconciliation. Be a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. If there's a problem in the church, I would say it's this. We like to be peacekeepers. We're not as keen on being peacemakers. Peacemakers head into conflict, whereas peacekeepers just try to keep everyone happy. Can I tell you that never works? Things always break down. So let's be peacekeepers, our peacemakers, not peacekeepers. And so after you go directly to the person, and if you bring another individual along, as a mediator in the process, you want to help them help that mediator identify solutions in case anything's been missed. And if that's still unsuccessful, invite leadership to the table. Allow them to be a part of the process, uh, process of finding a peaceable way forward. And if after that process, a mutually agreed upon solution can't be found, do your best. So if you're just living basically with a difficult person, do your best to love that individual. God will grow Christ in you, Christ-like character. But now if that person's divisive and damaging the, con uh, the witness of the local congregation then it does look like what we're supposed to do is that persons condemn themselves and we ask them not to have fellowship with us for a time for the purpose of, Lord, may they one day return, ready to be humble and repentant of heart. To live well in community, to stay on mission, we must follow the plan of Jesus for conflict resolution. As the music team comes, I'd like to close sharing what is the hopeful result of this process? Maybe you haven't read, I stopped reading that part of that passage because I wanted to point out at the end, here's the hopeful resolve. You're familiar with these verses, but maybe you've missed the context before. And here's what Jesus says. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done to them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. The context of that verse where two or three are gathered is people who are living well in community, who have resolved the differences they live in. I think sometimes we misapply that verse and just assume, well, if there's two or three people who know Jesus that gather, then God's there. And maybe... But I also would say it seems like the context is if they're gathering in the name of Jesus, 
And Paul writes in Ephesians, Jesus who came to break down the dividing wall of hostility between people. If we're gathering in his name, we can't be then gathering in his name and have unresolved issues among us. Instead, gathering in his name with issues resolved, relationships reconciled, we've got this incredible promise of anything that we ask according to his will and in his name, he'll do it. Who doesn't want to live in that promise? That's the promise of this scripture. Every time there's something to be worked through, it's because God knows that there's something greater for us to live in. There's great things for us to live in if we're living well in community. So let me read those verses again with this in mind. If, if two of you who have worked out your issues agree on earth about anything, you ask for it together. It will be done for you. For where two or three are gathered, those people living according to my good design, I'm there amongst them. I was considering this this morning. Why do we think there could be ineffective ministries and ministers in our world today? Is it because they haven't made it a priority to resolve the relational issues in their midst and congregations and ministries suffer? I think it could be. But God's plan is for his community, the church, to live well with others and fulfill the mission before them with his help while he dwells among them. So let me say, let's be that kind of community. Seriously, church, wouldn't it be great to be that kind of example? If you learn how to resolve issues in your life, then you know how to help others resolve issues in their lives too. This is something that we should be involved in. And if you learn how to do that, if you make that a priority, in so doing, you know what's gonna happen? You're gonna sleep better. You'll rest better. You'll free up mind space for healthier thinking and creative thoughts. And you'll start living better with others. I found this, if you resolve an issue with one relationship, your other relationships improve too. They just do. So let's follow Jesus' plan for conflict resolution and watch as we see God dwell more fully here. Does anybody want that? I do. Lord, help us with that. Music team, if you could come. And as they're coming, I'm going to invite you to stand as we're going to close in song in a moment. As closing, in closing today, maybe I'd just like to ask and I'd just pray with you that the Lord give you wisdom this week. As the Holy Spirit, maybe even as I was talking this morning, was beginning to put people's faces in your, in your mind to say, how are you doing in this relationship? Parent, how are you doing with your children? Grandparents, how are you doing with your grandchildren? How are you doing with your boss, your coworkers, your spouse? How are you doing with other brothers and sisters in this congregation? So I just wanna pray that the Lord help us all examine the relationships in our lives because my heart is, I want God to dwell richly here. I want, as we agree in prayer, as we gather for like a first Friday prayer, as we agree together in prayer, I want God to answer those prayers. And I want there to be nothing among us that would keep us from that. So God, I just pray right now for each and every one in this room. God, I pray that you would help us as you maybe have highlighted a relationship or a person or an individual or, or whatever it is, as you've highlighted those maybe in our hearts as we've listened to your words today as we've looked at Matthew chapter 18, I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to resolve those differences, those disagreements. I pray that forgiveness would be found. If we keep reading Matthew chapter 18, we see this is where Peter asks, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive him? Seven times? Jesus says 77. That we're gonna love like Jesus has loved us. Because then we have this parable where Jesus shares that he forgives the servant of a debt, but that servant doesn't do it. And so then that servant winds up back in jail. That somehow our interactions with others has an impact with our relationship with you, God. So God, I pray that we would work to resolve differences. I pray that we would check assumptions and clarify expectations. 
And Lord, invite mediators to be a part of the solution if that's necessary. And, and God, I just pray that we would truly live well in community, that we would be an answer to your high priestly prayer. Make us one as you and the Father are one. Lord, that you might dwell here richly, that you might answer our prayers. So Lord, we trust you for that work. I pray, Father, the people of this congregation would be courageous this week. Lord, it takes courage to be a peacemaker. And so, Lord, I pray for a courageous spirit in this body, that, Lord, you would help us to resolve differences, that we would be an example to the world around us of what it looks like to live well with others who may not agree with everything in the way that we think. Help us do that well, Jesus, we ask. In your name we pray. Amen.